to the Ed Spected Podcast with Jared and Jared. Today's big question is, why is improving reading so hard? Part two, the Deuce episode. (laughs) Number two. Uh, For those that might be listening for the first time, you can go back and catch part one of this. Uh, In part one, we focused on really the past 20 years or so of Ed reform and some previous attempts to improve reading scores nationally. So that that's in part one. Uh, you know, previous attempts, it seems like this is something that's being attempted since the dawn of man in our country at the federal, state, local level. There's always a, a reading initiative. I, I'm pretty sure we could find some cave paintings with. A, yeah, a yeah, this is it. Yeah. It, people kids sitting in circle time in a cave floor so (laughs) and and we we dove in around 1997 in the last episode and discussed the national reading panel's findings the the impact on no child left behind and why that kind of fizzled around the mid 2000s yeah and that that really gave some important context to the common core standards movement and why there was resistance to that and how we wind up sitting here 20 years later with the majority of districts still not at a point where they can really 100% say that they're implementing high quality curriculum that's aligned to uh, the prevalent research around improving reading instruction. Did you say there was some resistance to Common Core? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's going to be a seven-part episode. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole podcast in itself. Yeah. Um, and and maybe sometime we'll, we'll have an opportunity uh, to tell the story how you subbed for me in a presentation on Common Core standards about 10 years ago and, and had to have a police escort out of town. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know if I'm ready to talk about that yet. <laughs> You're still, you still have a little nervous twitch when, when I bring that up. Yeah, I'm just blocking uh, that out. <laughs> so in part two today, we're going to dive into some of the developments in the past few years that have really enabled districts to take some strides forward in their reading initiatives and and what has happened around that, what, why it's important, the potential impacts of these different initiatives. And then uh, in the last episode of this series, we'll get some actual on the ground district perspective of people that have lived, breathed this and, and have been in the trenches and, and have the battle wounds to, to show for it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited about that because this has been a big part of my career over the last four or five years. And we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the role that high quality curriculum plays in improving literacy, um, which kind of brings up a whole other side of discussion. You know, education is one of the few fields where there's an expectation that not only do you like perform your job, but you also have to create the things that enable you to perform uh, your job, which seems odd when you think about other professions, like you don't ask a nurse to like manufacture and roll their own gauze. You know what I'm saying? Like that. Put, have a gauze loom where they're weaving gauze (laughs) or have an electrician that's, that's smelting two miles of copper wire to to wire a home. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing. I think it's something that people who aren't in the classroom or, or aren't, you know, K-12 educators don't, uh, probably spend a lot of time thinking about or, or, or understanding that it's such an issue. But it made me, as we were kind of prepping for this, it made me think about my first few years teaching uh, and just that process of writing 
lesson plan after lesson planning and not just writing the lesson plans, but creating the, the presentations, the PowerPoints, making the oh, overhead transparencies. Oh. Yeah. I mean, what do you remember about that process? Uh, I remember thinking we would have to do these unit plans, not just lesson plans, you know, a whole unit and just think, man, this, I'm putting all the hours and hours into a week long unit that it's, I've got to do this every week as a teacher. Right. And uh, my, my first one, I was so proud of because I was a science uh, science major and elementary yeah. ed. And I had done this awesome space unit that I'd, I'd spent a whole weekend putting together really for about a three day unit. And when I went in the classroom as a, as a student teacher, it just so happened I had my, um, my college advisor that was there, my field advisor that was coming to visit that day. And then I had the classroom teacher in the room and then the principal and the superintendent were touring the building and they stopped in. So I had this big audience and I'm like, man, I'm going to knock this out of the park. And and so I got up on the board and I had drawn all these diagrams about the solar system and just filled that whiteboard full. And then I'm like, okay, now let's go to the next activity. And I started to race (laughs) the whiteboard and nothing happened. I had filled that whiteboard with a permanent <laughs> marker in my nervousness. And nice. so, yeah. Uh, so I learned to think on the fly and I learned very quickly that, you know, even all the hours of preparation you have to put into these one lesson plan units, you know, the best laid plans. <laughs> well, I just remember I, I taught sixth, seventh and eighth grade social studies my first year in the classroom so you know not only was i creating content for like a subject i was doing it for three subjects every day um and i just remember being up until midnight one o'clock in the morning working on powerpoints and and making copies of things that i knew i needed an overhead transparency for which if you're like under the age of 25 you're like what is an overhead transparency um (laughs) But I, I just remember this feeling like at the end of every day, um, thinking I got to create all this again, like for tomorrow, for, yeah. I got to do this again for tomorrow. <laughs> so I don't know, just an exhausting uh, experience all around. Yeah. Chris, I, I'm interested as a post-secondary person, what was it like when you first entered that instructor's realm, which now you're a tenured track professors we we have a a lot more reverence and esteem for your contribution on the show now even than even before so what was it like in the early days on post-secondary preparing to teach yeah it it's it's kind of fascinating because um I, i i think one of the things that shocked me initially as a graduate student was you know, you're, you're first, you're an undergraduate, you see yourself as a kid and, you know, you don't really realize how much responsibility you have. And then all of a sudden as a grad student, they throw you in as a teaching assistant or teaching a lab or something. Of course, my, you know, speaking in psychology specifically, and I was just kind of shocked at how little preparation they gave us. They just kind of threw us in there. Now, the good news is we did kind of have a preset curriculum, but you still have to be able to teach it in a way that efficiently and effectively comes comes across to people who maybe, especially in th- something like statistics, which is what I thought, you know, something that's so alien to students, right? And so I, I can't tell you how much of that was trial by fire, actually. 
Uh, and then just like, you know, elementary and secondary, you know, of course, higher ed's been going through a lot of changes in terms of how we deliver curriculum, you know, sort of aligning obje course objectives with, you know, sort of overall program goals. And so the other thing I've gotten to see is, you know, I sort of was thrust into the wild west of higher ed, you know, where it was pretty much every faculty for themselves in terms of curriculum. And then, of course, mm -hmm. now we're seeing a lot of discussion about formalizing and, and, you know, sort of trying to find almost a common core approach to some of these courses. Some departments embrace it, others fight it. Uh, my guess is school systems are probably the same way. Absolutely. Hey, Chris, let me ask you from a parent's perspective. Um, yeah. So one of the things that people tend to find very surprising when I talk to them about this curriculum issue in K-12 is that in a lot of schools, in the overwhelming majority of schools, the let's say there's five, um, you know, fifth grade math teachers, they're not all using the same materials to teach. They have the same right. standards, like they have the same state standards they're supposed to right. be by the end of the year. But the materials, the activities, the resources they're using to meet those standards are oftentimes very different and can also vary yeah. in quality a lot. How does that, as a parent, like, how does that strike you? Um, so what's interesting is, uh, and I was telling my colleagues here, uh, Jared and Jared, before we hopped on the hopped on the, the podcast, that you know, while I feel that I'm fairly proficient at teaching adults, when it comes to my son who's eight, about to be nine, I find myself struggling a lot because I have to think about education in a much different way than I do when I'm in a higher ed setting. Sure. Um, but the other side of it is, and, and this is a sort of anecdotal example, but yesterday uh, my son was sent home uh, because, well, it, it, all of his fellow students were sent home because they had a, a COVID outbreak at the school. Mm -hmm. And we were, I, you know, I generally, I help my son with his math and science homework and my wife usually helps him with sort of writing and social studies and that kind of thing. So we sort of split the load, although she does a lot more than I do. Um, what was fascinating though, was trying to teach him math, you know, trying to help him study his math homework, how different it is from what I learned as a kid at his age. Sure. Because uh, they're using arrays, which of course I use, I use, you know, matrix-based algebra, mm -hmm. so I understand that, but just how they teach it so differently than the way I learned, right? Yeah. And having to go run to a YouTube video and real quickly <laughs> learn how they, I'm not kidding, it really sure. was that. Yeah. Um, it was my wife's idea. It was brilliant. Um, but, you know, one of the things that dawned on me was, especially in COVID, but this probably would be a good thing even after COVID, is teachers also giving the parents information about how they do the instruction, how they do the pedagogy, right? Right. Um, that would have been amazing mm -hmm. if, if they'd had that. But then, of course, I also, as a, as, you know, professor you know and teacher myself that also mean, would mean double the work for a teacher you know because not only would they have to put the curriculum together for the kids but then they'd also have to turn around and have some kind of supplementary material for yeah. the parents well i would yeah. say one thing i would say though is that i think actually alleviates a little bit of the work on the teacher because what what we're going to get into today is like should it even be the teacher's job to create that curriculum in the first place mm -hmm. and i yeah. would say no uh and then if everyone is doing the same thing, if all the fifth grade math teachers and the fifth grade reading teachers are teaching from the same curriculum, then that allows 
the school leaders and the district leaders to think about what resources are going to be great for parents, et cetera. And there to be some synergy around that yeah. rather than everyone's okay. trying to support their own, you know, thing that they're doing. Yeah. So. Which, and, and we think about this unwieldy subject of literacy. And I think we've put it off as long as we can to, to get in to talk <laughs> about it. Uh, you know, we know how to teach reading well. Okay, sure. people know the, the science read, and it happens every day in classes all over this country, even mm -hmm. though we, we still have this, uh, you know, we don't have the outcomes we, we necessarily want nationally. And there's definitely some different uh, camps or fields of thought out there. And we've got the, the reading wars, you know, whole language versus phonics. I've seen <laughs> friendships ended over this. I've seen empires <laughs> that have fallen over this and even sword duels at conferences uh, because of the reading wars. Yeah, there's a lot of disagreement between those two and and we won't, we're not going to go into a whole long explanation of what those two are. There's a million articles about the reading wars and the major differences between those. But needless, I mean, all that say, a lot of reading programs in recent years say they align to either one of those, but there has been a shift more towards the phonics side of things. Mm -hmm. uh, what has been dubbed the, the science of reading that includes systematic phonics instruction, which again, a quick definition of that is just, there's a logical sequence of how letter symbols and sounds are introduced over a period of time so that kids mm -hmm. can decode and, and pronounce mm -hmm. things uh, accurately. But, the problem with, even with that shift towards um, a more phonics-based approach, most teachers are still trying to create their own resources that align to that and then turn around and teach them well. And it's just a lot, it's just a lot yeah. to handle. Well, and, and when you think about them creating their resources and some of the research that's been done around that, I mean, there's a, there's a big problem with that. The RAND Corporation, released a study last fall that only seven, wow. yes, 7% of teachers in elementary school are using high quality curriculum in reading right now. Yeah, Chris, will you react to that? 7% of yeah. elementary teachers using high quality curriculum in reading. Like what's your reaction to that? Well, um, let me say two things. One is it does remind me to, to point back to math because that's what I know the best. Um, one thing that, that is interesting about it, at least in the math side of things, is there's a there's a big focus right now in my son's curriculum on mathematical terminology. Yeah. I'll tell you guys right now, one of the biggest challenges I had teaching undergraduates was they were coming out of these high schools and I was having to teach them sort of the lexicon of math while also teaching them how to do it. Sure. And one of the things that made me realize is, is watching helping my son study is that's going to alleviate a lot of work for me by the time they get to me, if, you know, by them incorporating this into the field. Sure. Now, now the other side of it is though, is, you know, I, I don't think the parents, so what, I think one good thing that came out of COVID was that I don't think the parents realized just how much work the teachers go through mm. unless they have somehow been tied into education in some way. Yeah. So, you know, so, you know, one of the things I've, I've been noticing watching on social media among parents at my kid's school, for example, is they're now realizing how much work teachers do. 
Yeah. So that is yeah. one great thing that has come out of COVID is I think there's going to be a deep respect for, for <laughs> elementary and secondary yeah. educators. I, I do think it has, yeah, kind of publicized some of the behind the scenes a little bit more, yeah, um, yeah. especially as parents have taken on the role of facilitator for a lot of this learning that's taking place at home. But um, it's just a, this issue about, you know, and I'm going to switch us back to literacy. Yeah, even sorry. Though, yeah. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, uh, even though you're a math guy, but Jared, yeah. you know, this issue of only 7% of elementary teachers using high quality curriculum, when that's where the foundation is laid, it's just, well, it's really mind boggling to me. Well, I was going to say as a statistician hearing that number, uh, one of the rules that me and a lot of my colleagues follow, it's not, I mean, it's written down a few places. I think Cohen wrote about it in seventies and eighties, regardless of the academic side of it, just the you know, you got to realize 7% is a very tiny number. Sure. And you also got to keep in mind that most studies have a plus or minus error rate of 3%. Yep. So if we're assuming that, that it's a minus 3% here, that means it's really 4%, which tells me that's not a lot. Well, yeah. the other the other way to look at that is you could say 93% of the teachers across America are not using high quality. There you go. That's exactly what I, that's exactly <laughs> so what I hear. Let, let, let's do this, um, Michael, because again, I think we keep pushing off having to tackle this subject because we're, it's so, it's so big and, and so, uh, emotional for a lot of educators. Um, how, for the record, how is high quality, curriculum defined because we keep yeah. saying throwing that out there so what's what's high quality curriculum look like sure so in reading we're talking about a few things uh number one it's aligned to your career ready standards which at this point most states have adopted some career ready standards that from kindergarten through 12th grade are, are putting kids in a place where they have the skills to be successful in the world um secondly i would say it aligns with the science of reading so there's a uh component of systematic phonics instruction. There's a knowledge building component where kids are developing vocabulary across a broad uh, variety of domains. And then it's coherent within grades. So like what you learn early in the year becomes useful later in the year as you build on that. And it's coherent across grades. So what you learn in first grade helps you in second grade and what you learn in second grade helps you in third grade. And then it's just challenging and rigorous. Um, and, and those are things that can be defined in a lot of ways, but I think those elements sort mm -hmm. of encapsulate, you know, what would constitute high quality curriculum in reading. Right. And maybe from an outsider's perspective, that's, that's not an educator. They may think, well, why is it so hard to create curriculum? I mean, aren't there workbooks out there or, you know, ditto sheets. If we really want to go back past the transparencies, uh, yeah. And I think teachers themselves assume because of their teacher prep programs that it is their job to create curriculum as part of the, the lesson planning or because uh, their school may require it, their district, or in some cases, even the state may require them to yeah. do it. Um, but, you know, honestly, there's an art of teaching versus the science of teaching and the creation of curriculum is definitely a science. Yeah, I mean, like you said, a lot of teachers, new teachers assume they have to create their curriculum because of that's their experience in, in a lot of the college programs. But then 
a lot of teachers have to do it because they're not provided with high quality curriculum when they go uh, into a district. And there's a lot of moving parts with a well-written curriculum, which is, I think, why it's correctly described as a science to write good curriculum. You have to worry about standard alignment. You have to worry about worry about uh, text complexity, whether the text is at an appropriate you know, Lexile level um, quantitatively for the time of year and the, and the grade. Um, you have to think about the knowledge that's being built and are the vocabulary words that are included in a text today gonna be beneficial three weeks from now. And then across, across grade levels, like again, like I said earlier, is your third grade knowledge supporting what's gonna happen in fourth grade. So there's just a lot to think about. And then on top of that, you actually have to deliver it well. And I think that's the real art of teaching. When you've got 25 students in front of you, there's a lot of nuance involved in delivering a lesson well. There's a lot of instinct. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I think it's described as with itness, you know, like you're just responding to what you see. Uh, of course, there's some yes. science in the pedagogy, for example, like uh, different assessments and best practices, and we know how the brain works. But the delivery of that is, is a lot of the art. And unfortunately, yeah. you know, teachers get stretched because they're having to worry about the art of teaching and actually writing their own mm -hmm. curriculum. So, oh, and, and I, I know we, it may sound like we're talking about curriculum in general, and I think this does apply across subject areas, sure. but if we keep that lens of literacy, which is the topic of this episode, you know, to say there's lots of moving parts is an understatement. Yeah. If there, what, you know, because it's, especially in elementary school where you're literally trying to build a skill that is a lifelong skill. You know, we're not talking about, and, and sorry, math teachers, the, an algebra two where, you know, that's the, that's the old adage, every student, where am I going to use this in my life? You know, how right. to, this, this formula, this equation, but literally reading literacy is a skill that every human uses sure. you know, in some way. So uh, with all these, these moving parts and you're talking about standards alignment and, and knowledge building, all these different components, has there been any states that have tried to tackle all this and bundle it up and, and really take some of that pressure off of teachers? Yeah, I mean, obviously, our experience has largely been in, in Tennessee. And, you know, we can talk about what that looked like in a minute. But Louisiana had a really interesting approach around 2012, 2013, during the standards transition time. Um, rather than doing a lot of training on the standards, which they did, but they really doubled down on implementing or trying to implement the same curriculum across the state in both reading and math, but again, we're largely focused on reading. Uh, and they saw some benefits from that, but it was, it was really the first time uh, that a state had at that size and with that much success said, you know, we're gonna incentivize districts to use the same curriculum. It's comprehensive, it goes K to 12, teachers don't have to create things. Yes, you're always differentiating for individual students, but it was like a consistent baseline across the state. And it was very revolutionary looking back. I mean, it was the first time that something like that had happened. And, you know, they saw some benefits from that in their NAEP scores and it's, you know, been pretty well documented. So. Yeah. And, and we lived part of that statewide experience that right. 
about the same time when Tennessee undertook the largest educator training initiative in the history of our country. Mm -hmm. And part of that training included a framework for teachers to create their own curriculum materials. And, you know, we were part of the, the state leadership team that, uh, tried to help implement, facilitate that from the, the practitioner standpoint uh, as part of the, uh, we were the, the boots on the ground perspective and how we help implement yep. the training and facilitate that. But, um, you know, at the time I felt like, man, we are on the, at the cutting edge of instruction and pedagogy and, and all these different things. And, uh, but now with the, the, I guess the additional experience of the past decade and the, the benefit of hindsight, what are your thoughts on that? That I know we were, we were fired up much sure, younger sure. back then and fired up about that movement. And now, man, I, I, it's not that I question, definitely don't question the motives of, uh, our motives are the state leadership because we had some phenomenal right. people leading that work back right. then. But what are your thoughts now, given the different roles you've had and I've had and just, yeah. Well, at the time, you know, so as part of that training, teachers were provided with examples of, uh, tasks that could be used in reading class. So a text and questions, and at the time for a, a state department of education to provide that type of example to say like, these are the type of tasks that are going to ensure they meet standard and are prepared for the test. That was a big step forward, you know, yeah. in 2012, like just because Louisiana was doing their own thing with the statewide curriculum, which it really took until 2014, 15 for that to really get moving. But for the Tennessee department of ed to put out those tasks was a huge deal. Mm -hmm. um, at the time and the, the assessment, to, uh, assessment items that would go along with it. So I think it was a good uh, and a necessary first step. Um, but as we've seen over the last few years, it still left a lot of opportunity for variability between, yeah. you know, classroom to classroom. And so and, and having a, this conversation about more comprehensive curriculum is the next step. Yeah. And just a lot of pressure on teachers, especially I'll just say our more seasoned teachers that had been through teacher prep programs that even though you might be creating your own materials, yep. um, you're just essentially getting them out of a workbook a sure. lot of times or using a textbook. Sure, and, sure. and Tennessee was asking teachers to really start with a blank canvas and paint yeah like know, make it look like this yeah like look at look at this example and make it look like this yeah. but i guess yeah. the, the good thing over the last four or five years is because of some of that work the work that happened in tennessee and louisiana and a few other states um there are some places teachers can go now and actually find like comprehensive curricula that meet a lot of these expectations that we're talking about so uh for example louisiana i've mentioned them before they have a site uh, called Louisiana Believes, which rates different curriculum and puts it in different tiers for like how, how well it does at meeting some of these criteria. Sites like edreports.org, which is you know one of the first sites that rates and scores curricula based on a, on a rubric. Um, and you know some of the things they're looking for are 
things we've already talked about, standard alignment, text complexity, knowledge building. So we're in a very different place now than we were five or six years ago. It's yeah. just a matter of getting even more teachers using these types of materials. Right. And, and let's drill down a little more on, we've been talking about curriculum broadly, high, mm -hmm. high quality curriculum. And so knowledge building is a big part of this complex literary equation or literacy right. equation. Right. And so your reading comprehension is based on what you know about a subject not some isolated reading skill. Yeah, it's a really misunderstood thing. Like, you know, just because you can read one thing well doesn't mean you can read all things well and understand what you're actually reading. And one yeah, of the that, best... I, let, let, let me, yeah, I'm, I hate to interrupt, but yeah. you just hit the nail on the head. You, you might be able to read something well, but understanding it is completely different. Sure. You know, and I think people especially again, people from the outside of the education world, they, if they hear say a third grader reading fluently with no problems, there's a big difference in having that skill of fluency versus understanding what they just read. One of the best examples of this is something called the baseball study. And essentially what happened, there were four groups of, of kids involved. There were kids who knew a lot about baseball and those who didn't know a lot about baseball. And then there were groups of kids that were uh, classified as skilled readers and kids that weren't as good of readers. So they, they were introduced to the story about baseball and then asked some questions and the results were pretty surprising. So the, the group of kids that did the best um, were the kids that were good readers that knew a lot about baseball. Like that's not surprising, but it was mm -hmm. the second place group that really surprised people. The group that scored the second highest were the kids who weren't as good readers, but knew a lot about baseball. And then mm -hmm. in third place were the good readers who didn't know much about baseball. So it really underscored the importance of background knowledge and supporting reading comprehension. And so that's why in a lot of these new high quality curricula, they'll spend four or five or six weeks on the same topic in order to build a lot of vocabulary in that area. So you might study the Civil War for that amount of time or the civil rights movement for that amount of time and develop uh, that vocabulary because there is some research that shows that when you stay on the same topic for an extended period of time, your vocabulary builds four, even five times faster than if you're jumping around from one story to the next. Mm -hmm. What, what about someone like me? Uh, if I participate in that study, who is awesome at baseball? There was, baseball. Yeah, the there were no conclusive results. So no, I uh, mean yeah. no I, significant you difference. Can, you can ask my high school baseball coach, I got most improved player three years in a row. Well I mean boom, if if my microphone wasn't so expensive, I would drop it in the floor right now. <laughs> uh so you know that's interesting about the immersing in a topic because Again, we, we pull a lot from Tennessee's examples, but I think Tennessee has been at the forefront a lot of the, I hate to use the word reform because it's somewhat uh, taboo now, but the improvement movement, let's say the education improvement. And there was a, a summer program that uh, we used to do in Tennessee called Read to Be Ready. Mm -hmm. And it really immersed students who were struggling to read on grade level in a particular subject area for uh, an extended period of time 
so that they could have better context, again, for, just like you were saying about what they were reading. So, for example, if they were on a unit about the ocean, you you would take students on a field trip to the aquarium and, and that whole, you know, three or four days, you would just be focused on one area, subject area to immerse those students. And, right. and the results from that were amazing. Even my, my wife did her dissertation on uh, transferring those practices from a summer program actually into the, the uh, regular school calendar. And so I think uh, as we have started to evolve in this literacy conversation and, and I guess you'd think that would be intuitive for, to, for people to educators to uh, teach that way and create curriculum in that way. But uh, you know, it's, it's somewhat innovative for whatever right. reason right now. So right. um, I, I just think that's a, that's going to be even more of a prevalent thing in the intervention process in literacy is how we we go in more depth than breadth when we're in our instruction and, and the curriculum that yep. students. Well, you know, with everything we've talked about that's involved with, you know, what qualifies a curriculum as high quality, how do you um, think about constructing that, you know, probably shouldn't try to construct that because a lot of us just aren't trained to do that, um, you know, it's just a lot to keep in mind and it just seems kind of wild to expect teachers to create all these materials. You know, it sounds great in theory uh, when you come at it from an autonomy level, like I am in charge of, you know, what I teach in my classroom, but the reality is the workload it takes to create high quality reading materials that align with the science of reading. A lot of the research we know that, is you know how kids learn to read it just doesn't seem uh sustainable at a large scale and even if you can maintain the stamina to create everything that still doesn't account for or solve for what you make may be different than what i make like there may be some differences interpretations of the standards and the research so are our kids getting the same experience in our classrooms and will we see the same success and I think that's why at a basic level we're still at this point where we are with reading because you know according to that study 93 percent of teachers in the country don't have high quality curriculum provided that that meets a lot of these 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 boxes so yeah and you know again it's one of the most important skills that students and and people will have in their lives and so it's a it's a double whammy on especially elementary teachers. It's it's one of the most challenging and important skills that they will impart. And on top of that, we're asking them to create the materials to teach that important skill. Uh, and so, you know, either we need to magically introduce 20 additional hours in a teacher's life each each week to create these materials or you know teachers just need to quit sleeping uh, so that they can align the great curriculum with great instruction but I think to your point I think unsustainable is that key word right yeah. there yeah I don't think they want the 20 additional hours to create curriculum so we're going to just assume that the adoption and implementation of high quality curriculum is, is the way to go. So um, in the last episode uh, we're going to 
bring all this to a close, we've kind of gone through the history of reading instruction over the last 20 years and then talked about some of the more recent curricular developments and places like Ed Reports where you can go find high quality curriculum in the last few years. But the last episode, we're gonna get to the district level and get some perspective on what this actually looks like in motion at the district level, maybe why some districts are um, resistant to implementing these materials, but really gonna focus more on the positives and the successes of districts that have implemented these materials and are seeing benefits for their kids. So that's where we're going next. That's where we're going, but, but it might be more fun to have a uh, whole language Versus yeah, I'm gonna, person on there and let them. I'm to I'm going to be busy. That I'm I'm booked that day. <laughs> All right. So okay. Well, then we'll stick with the wrap up episode. All right. Well, thanks everyone for joining us. Looking forward to putting a bow on this series next week and uh, getting some of the in the trenches perspective. So hope you'll join us for the final episode on literacy with Ed Spector.